Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the Heming Brainiac read along a thon for Everlogue 1, Chapter 7. What do you think of Nikolai as a character? It seems to me that Tolstoy has a kind of fondness for domestic serfs. Here, Nikolai learns much from their farming methods. Pierre also takes on board the positive attitude of Platon. What is your opinion of the portrayal of serfs in the novel? It seems like many of the main characters find contentment through living simpler, less self-indulgent lifestyles. Is this something you've noticed, or do you disagree? Kara Kikar says, I felt conflicted reading this chapter. I know that near the end of his life, Tolstoy espoused anarchism and non-violence, but that is nearly 50 years away from the writing of this novel. I'm wondering if we are catching him as he is growing out of his nobleman's views, but not quite into his radical views of later life. This chapter read like some portions of Gone with the Wind. It described a peaceful harmony between master and servant that I don't think can exist as long as one has complete power over the other. It's a nice idea that Nikolai can be so nice to his serfs that they remember him afterwards, but the inhumanity and indentured servitude is glossed over. I think it's hard to put yourself in the mindset. I think it could have existed then. I think it probably did. I think it probably still does now. You know? Um, Like... A manager at a job and an employee there's this kind of hierarchy and um, that's fine you know and I think that's how it felt back then there was a hierarchy and they had kind of all accepted it I suppose like it was accepted at least and yeah it's really weird it's, it's kind of like a bit of mental gymnastics to try to put yourself in that situation but um you know the ceo of wherever you work has complete control over you and that's okay you know you're you're okay with that to some degree and i think even though it was um a lot less fair very unfair the situation that existed with the serfs it's a similar vibe maybe I'm not saying it I'm not saying that it's the same you know having slaves is the same as being an employee but I'm just saying like I think there was situations where they could have lived in harmony and accepted each other for what they were weirdly enough Twisted Every Way says time is just exploding in these chapters we had like 12 chapters in a row about one day of the war and now in one paragraph Nikolai is married off paid his debts and taken on a new career yeah Nikolai is just done all that in the space of a few chapters or pages I should say FDLP once says there was a huge time gap between last we saw Nikolai and the war years to the current point that I guess he could have turned out that way yeah it felt it was interesting because he still feels like Nikolai but definitely a grown up version of Nikolai and it's that feeling where someone who's young and exciting and ambitious grows up to be whoever they grow up to be and you're like oh okay yeah it's not disappointing exactly but it's just like ah you sort of see the spark disappear and they become sort of just more disciplined and and stoic and that's what we've seen with Nikolai let's read the next chapter eight goes like this one matter connected with his management sometimes worried Nicholas and that was his quick temper together with his old Hussar habit of making free use of his fists 
At first he saw nothing reprehensible in this, but in the second year of his marriage his view of that form of punishment suddenly changed. Once in summer he sent for the village elder from Bogotrovo, a man who had succeeded to the post when Dron died, and who was accused of dishonesty and various irregularities. Nicholas went out into the porch to question him, and immediately after the elder had given a few replies, the sound of cries and blows were heard. On returning to lunch, Nicholas went up to his wife, who sat with her head bent low over her embroidery frame, and as usual began to tell her what he had been doing that morning. <clears throat> Among other things, he spoke of the Bogotrovo elder. Countess Mary turned red and then pale, but continued to sit with her head bowed and lips compressed and gave her husband no reply. Such an insolent scoundrel, he cried, growing hot again at the mere recollection of him. If he had told me he was drunk and, and did not see it, but what is the matter with you, Mary? he suddenly asked. Countess Mary raised her head and tried to speak, but hastily looked down again and her lips puckered. Why, whatever is the matter, my dearest? The looks of the plain Countess Mary almost always improved when she was in tears. She never cried from pain or vexation, but always from sorrow or pity, and when she wept her radiant eyes acquired an irresistible charm. The moment Nicholas took her hand, she could no longer restrain herself and began to cry. Nicholas, I saw it. He was to blame, but why do you, Nicholas? And she covered her face with her hands. Nicholas said nothing. He flushed crimson, left her side, and, fa and paced up and down the room. He understood what she was weeping about, but could not in his heart at once agree with her that he had regarded from childhood as quite every day event was wrong. Is it just sentimentality, old wives' tales, or is she right? He asked himself. Before he had solved that point, he glanced again at her face filled with love and pain, and he suddenly realized that she was right, and that he had long been sinning against himself. Mary, he said, softly going up to her, it will never happen again. I give you my word never, he repeated in a trembling voice like a boy asking for forgiveness. The tears flowed faster still from the countess's eyes. She took his hand and kissed it. Nicholas, when did you break your cameo? She asked to change the subject, looking at his finger on which he wore a ring with a cameo of Locoon's head. Today, it was the same affair. Oh, Mary, don't remind me of it. And again, he flushed. I give you my word of honor. I shan't. It shan't occur again. And let this always be a reminder to me, and he pointed to the broken ring. After that, when in discussion with village elders or stewards, the blood rushed to his face and his fists began to clench. Nicholas would turn the broken ring on his finger and would drop his eyes before the man who was making him angry. But he did forget himself once or twice within a twelve month, and then he would go and confess to his wife and would again promise that this should really be the last time. Mary, you must despise me, he would say. I deserve it. You should go, go away at once. If you don't feel strong enough to control yourself, she would reply sadly, trying to comfort her husband. Among the gentry of the province, Nicholas was respected, but not liked. He did not concern himself with the interests of his own class, and consequently some thought him proud and others thought him stupid. The whole summer from spring sowing to harvest, he was busy with the work on his farm. In autumn he gave himself up to hunting with the same business-like seriousness, leaving home for a month or even two with his hunt. In winter he visited his other villages or spent his time reading. The books he read were chiefly historical, and on these he spent a certain sum each year. He was collecting, as he said, a serious library, and he made it a rule to read through all the books he bought. He would sit in his study with a grave air reading, a task he was imposed 
upon himself as a duty, but which afterwards became a habit according, affording him a special kind of pleasure and a consciousness of being occupied with serious matters. In winter, except for business excursions, he spent most of his time at home making himself one with his family and entering into all the details of his children's relations with their mother. The harmony between him and his wife grew closer and closer, and he daily discovered fresh spiritual treasures in her. From the time of his marriage, Sonia had lived in his house. Before that, Nicholas had told his wife all that had passed between him and Sonia, blaming himself and commending her. He had asked Princess Mary to be gentle and kind to his cousin. She thoroughly realised the wrong he had done, Sonia, felt herself to blame towards her and imagined that her wealth had influenced Nicholas's choice. She could not find fault with Sonia in any way and tried to be fond of her, but often felt ill will toward her, which she could not overcome. Once she had a talk with her friend Natasha <clears throat> about Sonia and about her own injustice towards her. You know, said Natasha, you have read the gospel a great deal. There is a passage in them that just fits Sonia. What? asked Countess Mary, surprised. To him that hath shall be given, and from him that hath not shall be taken away. You remember, she is one that hath not. Why, I don't know. Perhaps she lacks egotism, I don't know, but from her is taken away, and everything has been taken away. Sometimes I'm dreadfully sorry for her. Formerly I very much wanted Nicholas to marry her, but I always had a sort of presentiment that it would not come off. She is a sterile flower, you know, like some strawberry blossoms. Sometimes I'm sorry for her, and sometimes I think she doesn't feel it as you or I would. Though Countess Mary told Natasha that those words in the gospel must be understood differently, yet looking at Sonia, she agreed with Natasha's explanation. It really seemed that Sonia did not feel her position trying, and had grown quite reconciled to her lot as a sterile flower. She seemed to be fond of so much of individuals as of the family as of a whole. Like a cat, she had attached herself not to the people, but to the home. She waited on the, co the old countess, petted and spoiled the children, was always ready to render the small services for which she had a gift, and all this was unconsciously accepted from her with insufficient gratitude. The country seat at Bald Hills had been rebuilt, though not on the same scale as under the old prince. The buildings begun under the straighted... Straightened circumstances were more than simple. The immense house on the old stone foundations was of wood, plastered only inside. It had bare deal floors and was furnished with very simple hard sofas, armchairs, tables and chairs made by their own surf carpenters out of their own birchwood. The house was spacious and had rooms for the house serfs and apartments for visitors. Whole families of the Rostovs and Bolkonskys' relations sometimes came to Bald Hills with sixteen horses and dozens of servants and stayed for months. Besides that, four times a year on the name days and birthdays of the hosts, as many as a hundred visitors would gather there for a day or two. The rest of the year life pursued its unbroken routine with its ordinary occupations and its breakfasts, lunches, dinners and suppers provided out of the produce of the estate. <clears throat> All right, there we go. Excuse me, I just yawned. Um, That's that chapter. Cool. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.